welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. This is the Thursday deep dive on Chit Chat Money. Uh, my name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm here with Ryan. As always, you probably know him, but we have Ian on again. Ian, how you doing? You got your project going. You're out in Flagstaff. How's life? Life is going pretty well. It's uh, went down a couple of blue runs the other day on the ski hill, and uh, you know, starting to figure it out a little bit, having some fun, doing some investing in the market. It's been a crazy week this week, but um, life is good. So I saw you added a mohawk a little bit. What was it down like? Yep. 15% this morning, 10%, something like that. Yeah, just yeah about 10, 12% somewhere in there. Yeah. So, you know, got to buy those deals when you get them. <laughs> buy them. Yeah, Always buy sure. the dip. Always. Yeah, buy the dip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it, worked, it worked out this time for sure. Yeah. The uh, uh, All right, Palantir. we're talking Palantir today, but first up, we got to talk about our partners at 7investing. Uh, yeah. And if you use the code CCM at checkout, you can get $10 off your first month. Ryan, do you want to talk about any uh, highlights of what you like about the team at 7investing? Well, uh, only a few more days until the new picks. Correct. But uh, highlights, I don't know. The It feels like you're actually a part of the team, I guess. Mm-hmm. I want to give some sentimental pitch, but I mean, it's well worth the money. You're only paying seven bucks and you really get to know pretty much all seven advisors. So there's our sales pitch, but I'm going to get into what Palantir does. Um, and they are really secretive and it's really hard to understand. It took me forever, but I'm going to try to describe it. And Ian or Brett, you guys can uh, sort of revise my description if you want to, but it starts with data integration. So once Palantir software is made accessible to a customer, which tends to take uh, sometimes days or weeks to integrate uh, the customer and also onboard, the customer can then input all its data into the Palantir software. So it could be spreadsheets, it could be GPS coordinates, it could be satellite imagery, any sort of raw structured, unstructured data they can basically throw into Palantir's software. And then the second step is what they call search and discovery. Um, And so this is where the customer chooses what it wants to identify and can actually search it from a single search bar. So Palantir is able to identify outliers, patterns, pieces of data that customers are looking for. And it's not just they don't even really have to know what they're looking for. The example that Palantir used was a customer could ask uh, if it's like a government or a local government or something, they could say, show me a heat map of all the crimes that took place in my district over the last six months. Uh, and Palantir is able to query that. It's supposed that to do it, like, it. Like, a, yeah. like just really easy, like a snap of a finger. Yeah. And then the third step is what they have uh, called knowledge management. That's kind of what Palin terminology Palantir uses. And so this goes beyond simply the search and discovery and it provides basically context around the data. So where the data came from, when was the data found, who's, who else is allowed to see it. So it's basically given all that sort of background data along with it. And then that helps the analysts sort of make judgments uh, because that context around the data can be really helpful. And then the fourth part is collaboration. So this allows the individuals to work together and share their analyses. Um, of what Palantir provides them. So 
they said this part was a little harder than what they anticipated. And the problem is you don't want everyone coming to the same conclusion. You want people working independently and sort of analyzing the data on their own, but being able to share that in a similar format. Uh, and so that's what they've kind of built. And every individual has their own interpretation of the data set, and then they can kind of compare it. Um, but I really recommend going and watching a demo. They have it on YouTube. It's really impressive. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later, but I'll get into the history. So Palantir was originally founded by five different people in 2003. Peter Thiel, Nathan Gettings, Joe Lonsdale, Stephen Cohen, and Alex Karp. Alex Karp is that evil looking guy. You're probably familiar with the picture if you've ever looked at Palantir. <laughs> and it's the, he's the CEO currently. He is the CEO. And then uh, it was actually built originally to help counter terrorism operations. And the name is based on the Lord of the Rings scene stone known as Palantiri. Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's like with the one that Sauron has. Yo, you the like touch it and then you can the like see. Yeah. Well, you can communicate and you can see into the future. It's okay. basically, I mean, Palantir's the same thing. I, and when you say Stephen Cohen, I think you mean Stephen Cohen because Steve Cohen would be that. Yeah, sorry. Manager. It's um, not him. But I, I think two of the founders of Palantir were also founders of PayPal. Yeah. Am I, am I getting that right? Because I know you, yeah. Peter Thiel was a part of that. Was Alex Karp? Eh, not sure. I'm not sure who the other one was. Ian, you know? I don't think it was Alex Karp. I can't remember which of the other three it was, but... Okay. But the, uh, so the first platform they released was called Gotham in 2008 and Gotham is meant for governments or intelligence sources and is used to identify potential threats or help protect soldiers from potential explosives, that kind of thing. Uh, but then they also released Foundry, which is their business facing software in 2016. And Palantir states that Foundry is becoming the central operating system, not just for individual businesses, but industries as a whole. Um, and so really this is a place, uh, where, you're searching for specific data points, outliers, whether it's the government, uh, whether it's Gotham, that software, or the Foundry software, it's basically sort of on this, the foundation is similar. And then Palantir was started in Silicon Valley, but they moved to Denver, Colorado, and made sure to insult Silicon Valley peers in their S1. So I've got some quotes here. This was from I believe the CEO wrote this himself. He said, the engineering elite of Silicon Valley may know more than most about building software, but they do not know more about how society should be organized or what justice requires. He also said, our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. So he, yeah, they're not fans of Silicon Valley. He doesn't mince words. And it's kind of strange because he's a, he's a, I don't know. Peter Thiel kind of built that, some of it, some of the stigma or some of, I mean, not even Maybe. the stigma. He built a lot of what Silicon Valley is known for. Yeah. And I don't think Peter wrote this, but it does feel strange because they're all super rich guys from Silicon Valley. Aren't they the he, elite? But he also, I don't want to, uh, hopefully I'm not stealing anything. Uh, yeah, I'm not, but he also said, uh, wealth is corrosive. Like he hates it. And I'm like, the guys are okay. all worth a billion dollars. Yeah. Like, it's so easy to say that when you're that wealthy, but all right. Any, anyway, weird. the uh, uh, yeah. Before moving on to my topic, I'll say the conference calls and the S one are interesting to say the least. Uh, <laughs> I, I was not bored from the management commentary. Uh, it feels like they're lecturing us on how to run our lives, but I'll get into the industry and landscape. Oh, here, um, wait, Ian, you got real, some real quick. Oh, I've got. I did a, some quick research, and it was Nathan Gettings was the other. Uh, person from PayPal. He wasn't really part of the PayPal mafia, but he was an engineer at PayPal um, and then kind of went over to Palantir. Uh, okay. Peter Thiel kind of convinced him to start it. 
Yeah, because I believe they sold PayPal in 2002. To eBay. And they probably used that windfall to start start right. start this. All right. I'll get into industry, unique industry, as Ryan describes. So it's really hard to pin down the market opportunity. They're kind of building out their own for this software that's going to the government and uh, commercial enterprises. But it is only for enterprises, like large, large ones, at least right now. And one of their points that I think Ryan didn't hit is that they make a lot of this customizable. So since the contracts are so large, it could be upwards of $10 million for a company, maybe like $3 million. They make it so the software is built for that company, and then that gets it more embedded into the service. But I'll talk about the industry and get uh, back to that. And the S1, they claim to have $119 billion total addressable market. Half of it is around commercial at the 6K largest or 6,000 largest organizations around the world. And then half of it is government spending, assuming most of that is the U.S. government and state governments in the United States, because they do say that they only offer their products to U.S. Uh, government agencies and their allies, just kind of an interesting point. They only do that. I don't know how they define that, but whatever they, they do. Probably they probably ask the U.S. government. They say, can we do this country? And they approve it. Yeah. So that's kind of the, some of the controversy from, you know, having such a close relationship with the government, but it's whatever. Uh, in the S1, they claim again that in 2020, there were 50,000 custom software projects at large organizations and only 23% were completed on time and on budget. So that's one of the things that I think they can improve with if they bring the Palantir software to these businesses. The only question you really have to ask is, is anyone else going after this opportunity? Maybe, it seems like it's something that's fairly unique, but it's such a large market that you could see other companies trying to do it. And then it's also, you have to also ask, are these companies going to all want to pay Palantir tens of millions of dollars? Um, if so, that's so a good far, opportunity. Yeah, so far they have. Yeah. Um, right now they estimate they have about 3% of the market share. Uh, so they, they claim that they have a long runway of growth ahead of them. Um, sounds reasonable. Um, but yeah, kick it over to Ian if you want to talk about management. Yep. So like uh, Ryan mentioned, Peter Thiel was one of the co-founders. He's still the chairman. Um for people, I think most people are familiar with Peter Thiel, but for people who aren't, he was a, he's a Silicon Valley figure. Definitely. He was, um, a founder and CEO at PayPal before it sold to eBay. Um, he was an early investor in Facebook. He wrote a book called zero to one. That's been a, um, a bestseller. It's a very interesting book. Go ahead. Oh, good book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that really, there, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to say they're a contrarian and um, that that's kind of the trendy thing to do. He, at least from what I've watched of him, I think that he is a true contrarian. He thinks differently than most people. Um, and it's interesting because I think a lot of his ideas in zero to one, a lot of those were kind of contrarian ideas and have now become more mainstream because of him. And I think that's, I think he's done that with a number of things. Um, he owns about 7% of the common shares outstanding. He's the largest, uh, individual shareholder. The He has a fund that he started called Founders Fund, which is a famous fund. Um, that owns another 6% of Palantir. So quite a bit of... Um, Peter Thiel is definitely involved in this company. Uh, the CEO and another co-founder is Alex Karp. Uh, he really tells the story that the company was born out of a desire to take down Osama bin Laden and a response to 9-11. That, that was kind of, you know, we should be able to use data. We should be able to figure out these problems to um, take people down. And, and since then government, uh, you know, people in the military have basically said, yeah, if we would have had stuff like this, we may have been able to present some of these strategies. 
Um, so it seems like he's built that company to some extent. Uh, one interesting thing is in his professional bio, uh, oftentimes they'll just say like your board affiliations and what you're doing and his kind of, we've been talking about how it's a little bit of an eccentric team in the middle of his bio. It says he is a practitioner of chin style Tai Chi and is an avid cross country skier. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> just a little bit interesting that that's in the middle of his professional bio, but I think it kind of says a little bit about the type of people that are. Yeah. I also, Palantir. <laughs> I also, yeah, I also saw that he typically works out of a barn in New Hampshire. Interesting. So that's, I mean, they're just, they're a little different, which is not necessarily a problem and there's nothing wrong with Tai Chi and nothing wrong with uh, cross country skiing. It's just kind of interesting to see. I look at a lot of these professional bios and that kind of struck me as different than stuff that I generally see in there. Yeah. It makes the company um, more fun to follow for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Entertaining figures. Definitely. Um, he owns a little over 1% of the shares uh, in total. There's about 10% insider ownership, about 17% if you include the founders fund. And only 20% institutional holdings, which isn't entirely surprising given it's a fairly uh, recent IPO. But if it's on the market for a bit and kind of proves itself, I think that institutional holding number will go up, which should provide a little bit of a tailwind to the stock price um, as more institutions try and gain some uh, positions in it. Yeah. And then you also got to worry about the lockup period too. Because that can yeah, have for sure. effect. And I assume that that's part of the reason that the institutional holdings are low right now is that right. many of those institutions like to like to wait until some of these lockup periods expire. Sometimes they even have it written into some of their um, investing guidelines that they have to wait until lockup periods expire to uh, to purchase shares. So anyways, and, okay. something and, to keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, the lockup period, especially when Peter Thiel owns six percent or what was it yeah a six percent no seven percent outright and then his fund owns six percent if he decided to uh liquidate or return his capital to lps from the fund like that's a large chunk of stock so and they're yeah. going to because that's the whole that's kind of the, the you point. know i don't know if he'll release do his own it. shares though no maybe not his own shares but with founders the, fund. with the founders fund i mean you gotta expect that because you're i mean it's pretty late for returning that capital to their lps yeah Okay. Valuation. Yeah. I'll hit that. Enterprise value is $49 billion. Ticker is PLTR. EV to sales uh, as well today. Um, <laughs> we've seen a lot of crazy changes in stock prices. So this might be a little different, uh, but EV to sales trailing is 44.8. EV to gross profit 66. So not cheap um, yeah. at all. Yeah. It, might, it but, might come down somewhat just because their sales are so lumpy and so deal yeah. driven, but like, you know, they, they have slow growth and they'll have really accelerated revenue growth. So mm-hmm. you really, yeah. Look at the long-term period of their uh, yeah. deal making and all the contracts they're signing. And then the last thing I have here, and they're not profitable, not cash flow positive. They had a lot of stock-based compensation, but that was incurred at the IPO, which is weighing down the operating losses. Those shouldn't happen each year. The, I mean, you'd hope that I think it was like 30% of the revenue was stock-based compensation um, for whatever the trailing maybe a few quarters. Uh, it's higher. probably it's a little high, and you would not expect that to happen in a year where they don't IPO or did they direct list it? But whatever, you know, did they public? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, um, yeah, oh yeah, I'll dive into the earnings. So their full year 2020 revenue was 1.1 billion. That was up 47% year over year. That was a pretty meaningful acceleration from 
2019. So in 2019, the revenue growth was about 25% year over year. So like I said, it's pretty lumpy. Uh, it's really based on these big contracts. And then the average revenue from Palantir's top 20 customers was $33.2 million. So these contracts are huge. Um, and they didn't give an exact customer count this year, but in their IPO, they said they have about 125 corporate and government customers. Um, so top 20 are paying more than 33.2 or more than $33 million. And that's growing 34% year over year. So they're spending more with them, uh, with their existing customers. And the gross margin in Q4 was 78%. Their operating loss for the year was 1.2 billion. Um, but operating margin came down to about negative 49% in, uh, in Q4. So it wasn't as bad. And like, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of that was from the stock-based compensation related yeah. to the IPO. Um, they spent more than 100% of revenue on stock-based compensation in 2020, all, all from the IPO pretty much. Although, um, even without that, I'm pretty sure in Q4, 75% uh, of revenue was still spent on stock-based compensation in the fourth quarter. But that still might be tied to the IPO. Yeah. It might, might be worth looking into. And then the operating cash flow was negative 300 million for the year. Their adjusted operating margin. So if you added back all that SBC, you extracted that out was 32%. Um, and probably not fair though. It's gonna, they're gonna have some. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And then uh, another note that I thought was interesting. They have 2,400 employees. Um, pretty low. Pretty sometimes low. it's just interesting to get a, grasp on how big the company actually is because especially with Palantir who's so secretive um, it's just I don't know it's nice to uh, it's nice to see that it's a bigger company I was listening to one of the employees too like he said when he had to describe to friends what Palantir does he was like not really supposed to say and everyone's like well it's just data visualization he's like yeah sure or just using alterings right yeah all right. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything I have for the earnings. Ian, you want to hit balance sheet? Yeah, let's take a quick look at the balance sheet. So they've got about $2 billion in cash as of the end of the year, uh, about $450 million in debt and leases. I think about $200 million of that is uh, true debt. And that looks to be from a couple of revolvers, which with about 3% interest rates-ish, they're based on um, the LIBOR rate. So it's you know varies a little bit, but about 3%. Um, so not super expensive debt and not too much debt. You know, it's a $1.5 billion net cash position. So plenty of cash. Um, one thing to keep an eye on with a company like this, as with all SaaS companies, is their deferred revenue. And then also their day sales outstanding just to see. You want to take a look, make sure their deferred revenue, like if it's growing at the pace of revenue growth, that's not super um, alarming. But with these large contracts, it's kind of nice to know how much of it's coming now versus how much of it's uh, going to be coming later. And then with day sales outstanding, um, that basically is the time that it takes for them to collect money once they perform their service, um, how long it takes once they bill someone, how long it takes them to get their money back, basically. And that rose from like 18 days to like 34, 35 days um, from 2019 to 2020. I assume because 18 days is outstanding for SaaS companies. That's um, one of the lowest numbers I've seen. Generally, it's closer to you know, 30, 35, 40 days, somewhere in there. But one interesting thing, and I'd have to dive deeper into this, but I suspect that part of that is due to these government contracts and that government contracts, uh, the government agencies actually care less about cash conversion. And so as they weight more heavily towards um, these commercial accounts, 
that uh, that days of sales outstanding will continue to rise. So that wasn't super alarming to me that that jumped so much, but um, something to maybe keep an eye on a little bit over the next couple of quarters just to see where that normalizes because that'll dictate how much cash they have to keep tied up basically in operations versus how much they can invest uh, in new products and things of that nature. They, Interesting, yeah. They did mention that they tend to integrate the software faster than most software companies. Uh, they said it's more like days or weeks, whereas some companies usually takes months. Um, they do like to compare themselves to other software companies. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they do try to make themselves sound special. But that's weird. That, do they have the revolvers? They've taken out the money on the revolvers, or is it just they? Money? Yes, they at least the last. It's a little bit because they've just released a press release with the 2020 full year numbers. Um, so we don't get the whole annual report yet, but it looks like uh, from what I can tell that they have at least the last reported that they did have money out on the revolvers. Huh, Cause it's, that's interesting. I don't know why they would have it out with. They seem to have plenty of cash. Yeah. And so I don't know if they just say it's cheap cash or I, I'm not sure. It was a little bit surprising to me as well. Yeah. That is something to track. Also worth noting. Uh, you mentioned the deferred revenue. I Pretty sure I saw that the average uh, contract lifetime is three and a half years. So these are yeah. long contracts. Uh, it sounds like their customers know. It sounds like the customers really rely on the Palantir software. And it, I don't think Palantir is lying when they say it becomes the operating system for these mm -hmm. businesses. Yeah, I mean, I saw them sign a nine-figure deal with BP. They have nine-figure deal with the U.S. government I mean, across different agencies. Um, and the only other company I've seen sign nine-figure deals would be Autodesk. So. You know, it's pretty impressive that contract size. But let's take a quick yeah, those break. Those are huge deals. Or, yes, let's take a quick break then. Uh, we'll hit the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. Next up is competitive advantages for Palantirs. We'll throw it over to Ian first. What do you have? Yep, so I want to talk about scale. I think that's... Um, one of their major competitive advantages is like you're saying, they're closing nine figure deals. That is, there aren't very many companies that can just start up and start um, executing on nine figure deals. So the more customers they get, um, the more credibility, credibility they'll get. This is something that people care a lot about credibility. So, you know, I think the scale is really going to give them a first mover advantage here and uh, be a, be a big, um, just a big advantage as they move forward. Yeah, because you can't really have a ten-person developer team make a hundred million dollars software, whatever, or a, a platform, a custom platform, excuse me, that's worth like a hundred million dollars to a company like BP. That takes probably you know a good chunk of those employees they got there. Right, and like the you know sometimes we look at some of these industrial companies and say, look at all these assets they have on the balance sheet, and that provides a little bit of a competitive advantage because of the capital needed to get going. This, they don't have the same hard assets on the balance sheet, but like you said, all the human capital and also the years of developing the software and the relationships they've built becomes a pretty big, um, it's a huge investment for anybody trying to take them on. Yeah. yeah. And if, if you're worried about 
like management overselling how important their platform is, there's no better vote of confidence than someone paying a hundred million dollars to use it. Yeah, they do like, like the hyperbit <laughs> software, but it sounds like it's pretty legit. Yeah, and then okay, I'll get to mine. Yeah, so ahead. network effects, um, basically every piece of data that's being put in is one more reason to stay on Palantir. Like, uh, if you've been using Palantir for three years and you've had all your data inputted after for all that time, it's going to be impossible to switch away. And it also becomes more effective the more data it receives. So it can have more information on people that you're looking for for areas um, the more time that you've been using it. So there's that kind of network effect internally within the company. If uh, someone in a department that you never talked to put in data that's relevant to you, it helps you and you like you end up using the software software more. So um, there's sort of that network effect and it just leads to higher switching costs for yeah. the firms. And you can see as a whole, um, this kind of gets a little bit into the, uh, you know, like the fairy dust AI stuff, but as they get more data onto, you know, within the company, theoretically that drives their machine learning platforms to do better. Now, how much of it is going to be realistically helping their customers? We'll see, but if anyone's going to have an advantage, it will be Palantir. Um, but right, we're, we're we're hit mine. yeah, I'll hit mine. I, I said privacy stuff. So they talk about on the S1 where they claim they have won the trust of institutions, which I think they mainly mean the governments. Uh, and there's a reason why they're choosing them for the software instead of other people. It gives them an advantage, especially with the customizable nature to make certain things private versus others. And it helps when they're trying to win customers and they're saying like, look, the US government uses us. They need privacy. Um, you're going to not get better privacy with something somewhere else, you know? Yeah. What about uh, future growth opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. So the one I identified is average revenue per customer. They said that it was up 41% last year, which is a massive number. Um, and then even among their top 20 customers, it was up 34%. So even companies that were already companies or government that was already uh, spending you know, the most money with them, they were still up 34%. So I think that's going to continue. They're going to continue to have growth opportunities there through additional products, smarter AI. Um, you know, once they have this data, there's all sorts of, you know, I'm sure they're talking with their customers every day and figuring out, you know, what tools they, because they can build the tool. Now the companies just come to them and say, Hey, what would be really nice is if we could be able to do this with the data. And six months later, Palantir comes back and says, Hey, you can do that now, but Let's add this to your contract. And so I think average revenue per customer is going to be a big driver for the next few years. Yeah, and then with the average revenue per customer being so high, it gives them the ability to spend more on that customer, which for a company that's selling software for 30 bucks a month to their uh, clients, it's not really going to work, but someone like Palantir could potentially make it profitable. But I'll throw it over to Ryan. What's your future growth up? Uh, so I don't know enough about the tech to give any sort of growth opportunity that way. But it seems like a little bit of a more intuitive user interface would be good for them. And the thing is, the tech itself is really, really impressive. But uh, when you looked at the demo, the user interface looks like it's from like 2008. Um, and I know it doesn't seem like it would matter that much, but they spend a lot of, I'm sure they spend a lot of money uh, and time onboarding clients and getting them acclimated to the software. So if they can make that a little more intuitive, make it easier for non-experts to navigate through that, uh, they're going to be able to decrease those costs hopefully over time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It might yeah, be a I mean, small part, but it's like 
it still matters. It can help save people time. Yeah, it looked like extra old. Extra difficult. Kind of like yeah. even worse than someone like Alterex. It was similar to Alterex. Similar to that. Yeah, I mean, that one looks that one looks pretty bad. Um, but, but the thing um, is, the back end is maybe the most impressive software anywhere. <laughs> and then they just, they're like, yeah, who cares what people see? The UI they need some front end, front end UI uh, engineers for sure. Uh, but I'll hit my future growth opportunities. I think industrial companies could have, and you know, they have a lot of potential to work with them. They they highlight in their S one that there was an engineers at a raw material company that increased their output by two billion dollars by using their software. Um, show so showing this to other you know Fortune two thousand industrial firms. Um, that could really help balance your gains to more companies. It feels similar to someone like Autodesk, which I already mentioned already. Where it's like upfront managers, people that are you know allocating the client uh, the spend are saying you know do I really need to spend a million dollars a year on the software? But then it ends up saving them five million dollars, and they're like you know all right, well it's definitely worth it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and I think they just signed a big deal with Trip Three uh, M. Three M. Yeah, that they that, expanded yeah. their contract. Yep. So, and Ferrari too. So I know that's a oh, line. So wow. They did mention that. I'm ultra bullish Ferrari. Uh, but let's hit highlights and lowlights. Ian, what do you have? Yep. So for my highlights, like I mentioned, I think the revenue per user improvements are really impressive and just shows the strength of their platform. Uh, strong revenue growth and the right connections. I think this having Peter Thiel connected is a big deal. Um, that gets you in. That gets your foot in the door in a lot of companies in a lot of places. So I think that's big for especially a company like this that's trying to uh, close these huge, you know, like you said, nine figure deals. So um, that's a big, big deal. Uh, for low lights, I, I think Ryan, you gave a great explanation. I and helped me a lot, and I think really did a good job for all the listeners too. Um, it's still a little hard for me to understand exactly what they do in all of these situations. Like I wish there was a little more. Um, information yeah. out there about how customers use this exactly. And especially for the government business, which seems to be such a big part of it, it would be nice to know exactly what's going on. Um, and they seem to like it like that, not super transparent. Um, and just, you know, they talked for quite a while about, you know, I think I found articles all the way back in 2013 when people were speculating they might go public saying, oh yeah, we don't really want to go public because then we have to be more transparent and all this type of stuff. And they've kind of figured out a way to, give a little more transparency, but still um, not be super transparent. And and maybe that's going to lead to, you know, over these next few years, I think they're probably in a better position now in 2021 than they were in 2013 in terms of having such a competitive advantage that they may be willing to be a little more transparent with investors going forward. But we'll see about that. Um, I also, I, I think that the platform is interesting. I also, I'm not sure about some of the... Um, ethical considerations. They seem to be doing the right thing, but there are a lot of questions about that. And I just don't understand it quite well enough to get a good feel for that. Yeah. There are some outside parties that could affect them. I mean, the relationship with the government, you know, local authorities could really right. hamper some of the stuff. Um, and that's not something the company can control. Yeah. That's the and thing. the last thing I'll mention, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, we talk about the lack of transparency, but part of that might be because they have to be secretive. Mm -hmm. the, the government right. might not want details of their contracts out. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, the last thing I want to mention, and you talk, touched on it a little earlier, but this, this adjusted operating margin, they're guiding for an adjusted operating margin of 23% in Q1. Um, 
the big adjustment they make is stock-based compensation. It looks like they expect that to still be fairly high. And I'm not sure I love the idea that we're adjusting our operating margin based on stock-based compensation, because it seems like you're going to have to be paying those people one way or another. If you're paying them in stock and you actually believe the stock is undervalued right now, which I assume they probably do, um, it may be even more expensive than cash to be paying them in stock. And so the idea of kind of adding that back to get this weird adjusted margin, um, you know, it's not like it, it shows they're improving their margins a little bit, but I'm still, I don't love when I see adjusted margins like that, that don't really make sense to me. Yeah. I worry, you know, I don't worry about their gross margins. Gross margins look great, but I do worry about management's lack of discipline in the operating expense line. That would be a big concern for me. Yeah, they do. They, it doesn't seem like they're running a super tight ship with all the operating expenses. Uh, no, and that could change. They could change. But as a shareholder, uh, one, you don't want your shares diluted. And two, you need to get profits at some point. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Ryan, what, what do you I'm got not, for him? Yeah, I'm not sure they'll ever... I assume they're being sort of aggressive with it because they know how much they can generate in the future in terms of revenue. But to Ian's point, yeah, there is like a little part of me that doesn't quite understand the product in its entirety. So some of these are custom, but I'm curious how many they can build and then just redeploy and make a few adjustments. Right. If it's like in the same industry or do they have to build different custom software? Because I assume being able to sort of redeploy it with a few adjustments is more profitable than having to start from the ground up with another custom uh, software solution. But um, Well, they did mention on the conference call they are doing more it was a little strange because I felt like they were contradicting themselves because in the S1, they talked about how an advantage they had was customization, right? But then on the conference call, the last conference call, they talked about how they were doing more cookie cutter things like you just mentioned to improve profitability. So I thought that was a little bit of a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that uh, that part that I don't quite understand that might be a bit of a red flag for me. But then the other low light is that management... Uh, I've, I don't know why I have this, but I'm typically anti Silicon Valley. I guess so are they, but it feels like they talk to people like they're beneath them. Like this guy just rambled on the conference call without even talking about the business at all. It was just saying, like, he was talking about how he views the world and his personal takeaways from COVID. I'm like, he was talking about clandestine. You know, you know, I'm trying to say, he was talking about clandestine returns. I don't know what that means at all. I don't. It, uh, so I guess me. Yeah, that was a red flag for me. But then my highlights are that uh, I watched the demo on YouTube and it seems like maybe the most revolutionary technology uh, I've ever sort of watched a demo. Careful, of. careful. New paradigm. Are you saying it's a new paradigm? Right? No, I'm not. I'm not big with tech, but this seems like a database <laughs> that could literally run the world. Like uh, yeah. I was watching this. Like they had history on everybody uh which is a little concerning uh but it was really really impressive and so there's like this slight part of me that's like you could pay anything right now and this is going to be a bigger business in the future but obviously that's not the way we invest it just uh there the tech is wonderful and that is like maybe the entire investment thesis in and of itself but the the management just seems like a low life for me 
Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree. Uh, let's see if I have anything else here. Um, we talked about, yeah, I guess improving, they are improving their margins. I did like that. I think they talk about contribution margin, which again, excludes stock-based compensation, but that went from like 17% to 55. I think that's good. Um, clear path to growth, which we talk about a lot, but I do like when there's that clear path to revenue growth. They have that long-term guidance of $4 billion in revenue by 2025, which seems a bit audacious, but if they can get there, that's quite impressive. Um, low lights, there's outside forces, like I mentioned, that can hamper growth. Um, a lot of stock-based compensation and the eccentricity of management. So yeah. uh, that's just tough to get around. It's just tough to get around. But do you guys have anything else before we hit the more or less interested? Or? I guess maybe a competitive advantage, maybe this is a highlight as well, but Think about how hard it would be to start a competitor to this. You would mm -hmm. need so much capital up front to do customized software for massive enterprises like this. Yeah. Like, especially going one at a time, business by business, that seems really hard to scale for anybody that doesn't have enough money. Now, Palantir obviously has enough money in their own chairman, uh, but also the <laughs> access to capital the, is pretty easy. Peter Thiel's. Yeah, um, I mean, he's yeah. obviously got, if they're dying for, a few dollars here and there, I'm sure Peter Thiel would dip into the piggy bank, but yeah. And now they're in the public markets and they can raise capital at will. So, um, yeah, I guess that would be a competitive advantage for me. Yeah. Ian, anything else before we do the final question? Nope. All right. More or less interested. What do you guys got? Uh, Ian, you want to go first? Yeah, I'd say I'm slightly more interested. Um, I had a pretty low level of interest to begin with just because it seemed like it might be in that too hard pile, but uh, I think Ryan's pointed out some good things here that kind of gives us gives me a little hope that I might be able to understand it. And uh, uh, you know, I, it, it's the strong revenue growth and and like you said, a clear path. Kind of, it, it, I'm a little interested. It's going on the shelf for now, but I'm interested. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I wanted to hate this thing. Like, I really went into it thinking, all right, management's full of themselves. Uh, it's kind of one of those frothy stocks, and it's got a sales multiple in the 40s, which. I always have a hard time with, but it, I was really, really impressed. Um, and so I am more interested. This might be one where I set maybe a more desirable price um, and have to do a little more digging with the tech. But uh, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating business. I was glad uh, Ian picked this one. So what about you? Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I'm more interested in the business. There are a few red flags around stock-based compensation, like we mentioned, uh, and I do worry about the eccentricity of management, but that the business looks solid, uh, but I mean, valuation is just insane. It's insane. Uh, I, it needs to get cut. Uh, the valuation, at least on a sales ratio, needs to get below, I don't know, 10, 15. There's, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's in, it's I know, it seems lazy because we say that every week, but... but but they're also like I, you know, this isn't this isn't my favorite business, and I agree the valuation's a little crazy. But when you're growing revenue by forty percent or thirty four percent with your average revenue per customer, and thirty four percent with your top twenty customers who are in seven, eight, nine figure deals, like that can eat up those sales multiples pretty quickly. And like I said, I'm not ru I'm not rushing out to buy this stock. I'm you know I've got some questions, and valuation is one of them. But it, it doesn't. It, <laughs> It doesn't seem as insane to me as it seems to you, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. The uh yeah, this is not this is one, I guess, 
I don't know if, if all the other stuff kind of checks out, you know, there's some other things to, you know, look into before buying, you probably got to wait for the proxy statement. I think that would be an important one here, but yeah. this isn't one I wouldn't be afraid of paying up for. Uh, but 44, I don't think I would, no matter what the company is, I'm not paying 44 times. There, there is part of me that sees this as a software that runs like a dystopian future though. That's a little <laughs> bit of a concern for me. Like <laughs> data on every single person and the enterprise elite have access to it by paying millions of dollars. That's a little concerning. Government yeah, oversight. Just, just connect a few dots there and you might get a little depressed, but they can make some good <laughs> but money. But at the same time, it. that could be a really good investment. But yeah. Um, all all right. right. Next stock for the week. You're right, your turn. Stock for next week. I'm going with Evolution Gaming Group. Uh, oh, I think they're oh, a Swedish oh. company. Um, I think they have to do with. Uh, I'm not sure casino gaming, like gaming. Uh, like sports betting. I might be wrong on that, but it was pitched to me over uh, Twitter. So Robinhood better. Is it? Cool. Okay. <laughs> He didn't get sick. What did you say? Oh, oh uh, it's because gambling casino. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah. Evolution Gaming, ticker EVO. EVO, exciting. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that one, I mean, I, I hate to be the uh, confirmation bias, but I see Jerry Capital tweet about something. It hops on my radar for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you on our next episode.